Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It is the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take a look at America and the threats to America. We discuss the news of the day and what it means for you today. We'll discuss the Bob Mueller statement. Wow, he spoke. Yes, he did. Um, I recalled I was just on Fox talking about it. They said, this is significant. I said, Mrs. Bennett and I watched the Forrest Gump movie over the weekend. We also watched The Longest Day on Memorial Day and had hot dogs and uh, potato salad. Okay, Okay, nice. But uh, Forrest Gump, he after has a lot of trouble and uh, tragedy, he runs and he runs for two years and or three years and two months and everybody follows him and then he just stops and someone says he's going to speak, he's going to speak and there's a long pause and Forrest Gump says I'm tired now, I think I'll just go home <laughs> and I, I you know I said Bob Mueller's going to speak, he's going to speak. Uh-huh. Well, he spoke, and it, he 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 left the stage as I predicted he would want to. Mm-hmm. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm going home, like Forrest Gump, but not without leaving a uh, a live grenade right on the yeah. stage, mm-hmm. uh, opening the door to uh, impeachment uh, proceedings. Almost encouraging it. We'll talk about that with uh, Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. By the way, I'm a fellow at the American Strategy Group at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. We'll also catch up with Gordon Chang. We'll discuss the president's visit to Japan, the China trade talks, and the latest on North Korea. So let's welcome Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Bill. So uh, we are sitting here on May 29th, my anniversary, wedding anniversary, 37th. Uh, but I don't want to talk to you about it. Enough said. <laughs> Good. And I know, I mean, a lot more could be said. I didn't mean it that way. Um, 37 great years, but also the day in which, man, like two hours before announcement that Robert Mueller would be giving a um, a press conference but issuing a statement. I saw it, and I assume you did and listened to it? Yeah, no, I, I, I did. Uh, I'm not, I, I'd like to hear what you think about it, actually, but I thought, I thought um, it was quite dishonorable. Here's Mueller, who's already issued this report, who we know would be leaving at some time, and took the occasion to have one more smack at the president for what would appear to be no good reason. But why did he need to have that press conference and say all that when the report says much of that? And so he, it seemed kind of gratuitous to me. But I, I'd be curious, Bill, actually, of what you thought about that. Um, I, I would agree with you. Um, I was on Fox before uh, he came on, and I said... Um, Maybe he'll do a Forrest Gump. You remember Forrest Gump after running for two years and three months or three years and two months said, I'm tired, I'm going home. Um, Mueller did say that. I'm tired, I'm going home, I'm done. And obviously he'd prefer not to testify, but not before leaving a live grenade on stage. Um, It was uh, gratuitous, I thought. And um, a couple of things. Um, His statement, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. I think that's an open invitation to the Democrats to go after the president. I mean, that's a that's a weighted statement. That's not a neutral statement. Um, you know, they didn't have uh, evidence uh, to go after the president on collusion. But uh, he's saying if we had similar lack of evidence uh, that the president didn't uh, commit a crime, we would have said so in regard to obstruction. But we didn't say so. Um, that's one. And two... Uh, he says that, you know, the reason they didn't go forward on that uh, mainly was the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that you can't indict a sitting president. Well, that's not what the analysis of the report suggests. 
which is and and what Bill Barr has has argued. Bill Barr has said, you know, we, we in conversations with the special counsel, we said, is it is, is is the lack of finding because of the OLC opinion or or the evidence itself? And they said, no, it wasn't the OLC finding. We just couldn't determine it. Well, if you can't determine the guilt or innocence, then it's innocence. But when you say, you know, if we had confidence the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. You're saying maybe he did commit a crime, and then then Mueller says. You know, there's another process to determine uh, whether he acted properly or improperly. And that's a second invitation to the uh, to the Congress, to the Democrats to go after the president. That's how I see it. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And uh, it it seems to me in that uh, Mueller is betting that the administration is not really going to go after Comey and Brennan and Clapper and those parts of the intelligence community that had had arrayed themselves against the president. And I think Mueller's betting that that's going to be, you know, it's going to take a while, it's going to be tough to do, and the Justice Department itself is not going not to have the guts to do that. And so he's betting that the Democrats are going to get away with this extremely, not merely politically wrong thing to do, but illegal thing to do of using our intelligence community against American citizens and American politicians in ways that really try to color the political system. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that on the merits with you, but I don't see the connection. First of all, I think it's a very bad bet if that's a bet Mueller's making because they are going after that history. I mean, they're going after it with Horowitz. They're going after it with uh, Guy Huber in uh, Utah. And most important now, John, John Durham, uh, is going after it, the guy from Connecticut. So that's a bad bet. They are looking into it, and Barr has said, we're going to look into it. I'm making a broader point, which is there is still this deep state effort to undermine Donald Trump and this election, because these people believe they know better than the American people on who should govern this country. you saying Mueller's and part I'm, of that? Well, look, Mueller's part of a system that I think believes himself to be superior to the American people in their judgment. The way he behaved today is evidence of that. Did he really need to go out today and smack the president one more time and then open the door the way you're suggesting for the Democrats to have ammunition for the next six months to make these charges against the president that are untrue, unprovable, and at the end of the day, irrelevant to what really happened here? Well, as if it really, as if it really mattered that that the Russians were colluding. Who were they colluding with? As far as the Russians colluding with anybody, it looks like they were colluding with the Democrats. Okay, where okay. Was, where, where? No, I mean, really, if Mueller were a serious man looking at Russian collusion, would he not look at what what they were doing, colluding with the Brennans and the Clappers and the intelligence community against the Trump campaign? If he were serious, I think he'd get to the bottom of that. He didn't. All right, all right. We got, we got several things on the table here. Let's let's disaggregate. First of all, I, I I think he'd be making a bad bet again if he's betting that this isn't going to be investigated. The history it is, and Bill Barr will do it. But second, I read the motivation a little differently. Who knows what's in the mind of man? But I think he and his team probably pounding on him saying the president's running around saying no collusion, no obstruction. We didn't say no obstruction. We said insufficient evidence or you know the office of legal counsel so you got to get up there and clarify that uh and 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 let the congress take care of it and then all of a sudden you get the cover of the office of legal counsel 
Third point, yeah, I agree. If you were looking at collusion with the Russians, sure looks to me, from what I know, like there was more evidence of Democrat than um, than Republican. And we may well find out about that. But I think we agree, whatever his motivation, he's part of the establishment or he's just ticked that he thinks Trump's running away with too, too great a generalization. Um, he, he put a bombshell out there, and I, I now think love to know what you think, that the the move toward the clock, if you will, toward impeachment just moved up by about 15 minutes, and it's now 10 to 12. Well, yes, yes and no. Obviously, if they want to try to impeach him, go right ahead. Donald Trump will crush them in that, in that effort. If it comes down to the Democrats and these people like Gerald Nadler, you know, who is a radical on the best of days, if it comes down to him and his cohorts trying to make this accusation against the president and the president going in the media and going after them and defending himself and how good this country is doing today, I think that's the, exactly the fight the president ought to be having. Please try to impeach Donald Trump and Donald Trump will, you know, he's a catcher, right? He will punch back and he will show exactly what's going on here. So. You know, I I think I've been pretty consistent that, sure, you can try to impeach Donald Trump. It's not going to work. And not just because he's not going to get there, just not because they're not going to get a conviction in the Senate, but the president himself politically is much stronger than we think, Um, much more capable. I I, I basically agree with you there. Um, I said, um, you know, he, he, he dropped a live grenade on the stage, Mueller. I didn't say who was, whose face it was going to explode in. And although I do think they'll be closer to impeachment, and I think it'll be harder for them to resist the siren call of impeachment, I think that he, if they impeach in the House, which they have the votes to do, he will not be convicted in the Senate, A. B, I think he'll win the political debate for several reasons. This is an unattractive group of people, to put it uh, to put it lightly. Uh, led by Nadler. Second, the American people are tired of this inquiry. They think it ended with Mueller. By the way, parenthesis, they're not tired, according to recent polls, uh, and they're curious how this all came about. So the investigations that Barr and company are are running with Durham and and Horowitz and all, uh, they do favor because they would like to know the roots. So I think that, yes, um, if he is impeached, um, he will not be convicted by the Senate, and he will win on those grounds legally, and he will win politically. So although it was a live grenade on the stage, let me change the metaf- mix the metaphor here. It was a little bit of, please don't throw me in that briar patch. Please don't throw me in that briar patch called impeachment. If he gets thrown in that briar patch, he's going to come out the big winner, and that'll, that'll surely end the procedures. Yes, that that, that, that that seems exactly right to me. At the end of the day, these are just pieces in a political war. And M- Mueller has played his part, and he keeps on playing his part. And I just hope he uh, keeps to his word. And now that he's walking off the stage, stays off the stage. I don't I don't know. Let me ask you t- two things. First, first, to conclude that last point, I think we both agree that pe- how impeachment will come out. But do you think the Democrats will impeach now? No. I think uh, at the end of the day, they will. Um, they have enough smart politicos that they'll they'll realize this is very bad politics. 
But on you know, on the other hand, who knows? Maybe they can't help themselves. <laughs> so, so, so maybe I know they can't help themselves. I'll bet you a bowl of Cipriani pasta on that. How about that? <laughs> yeah, no, I think yeah, no, ha- happily in there. I, I, I just don't think they'll be able to resist. I think they're close now, and I think they're going to hear from all their their left uh, base. Man, Mueller just handed it to you. You can't turn it down. He said, hey, there's another process for determining whether the president obstructed justice. Go for it. Yeah. You know, no, I, I think that's certainly possible, but it, it seems like a really dumb thing to do. And so... Therefore, they'll probably do it. Okay. 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 All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. This is still very fresh, and and we'll see. But I'm partly going off people's reactions on this, uh, you know, their immediate visceral reactions, which sometimes are more reliable than uh, what they think about two or three days later. I think the base is going to go nuts and drive them in this direction. Let's talk about the domestic political scene a little more. Uh, And then I'd certainly want to talk to you about China and uh, the Committee on the Present Danger, uh, China. But t- tell me, t- you, you pointed out something I haven't thought about a lot that the Democrats are doing now, which is talking the dollar down, talking the economy down. Say more about that, Brian. The really surprising thing in the country right now is, is the Democrats have decided, even though people's lives are getting better, that the economy is stronger, jobs are being created, consumer confidence is up, the Democrats have decided to take the strategy that we're going to say things are not so good, and we're going to talk the economy down, and we're going to try to try to sell the American people on the idea that things are really bad, and they're going to see whether or not they can get their their you know what I what I would broadly call the global elites on Wall Street to to generalize that way and see if they won't join them in that. Partly because the president has stood up to China and. The president has exceeded all expectations when it comes to how tough he could be with the Chinese. He's in the middle of negotiating a trade deal, which looks like it may not happen because, you know, he wasn't willing to compromise on on fundamental principles. And he wanted to hold them accountable when it comes to, you know, the theft of intellectual property and forced technology transfers and, and all sorts of other bad behavior. And Wall Street themselves were shocked by this. And so Wall Street, and I believe the Democrats together, are in rebellion against the president and the fact that he's willing to talk tough and be tough when it comes to China. And so we see the beginnings of a very odd strategy here that the the, the Democratic Party, at least the part led by Joe Biden uh, and Wall Street are basically going to say things are not good and, you know, China's not a problem. The president's got it all wrong and everything is going to be ruined. What, what did Joe Biden just say that recently? I think it was a couple of days ago. Joe Biden said, you know, the president is squandering the strong economy given to him by President Obama. And Morgan Stanley now is, is calling for recession watch because of the president standing up to China. And, you know, they look at everything and, you know, they, they see this, all this tough talk and they realize, man, this doesn't bode well for the economy in their eyes. Because, of course, the, the Chinese are really upset by the president being so tough here. And so you see you see a combination of these forces. Simply, if whatever Trump says, they're going to say the opposite. Economy's strong. They're going to say the economy's bad. But Groucho Marx, you know, he what are you going to do? Believe me or your own eyes? You know, I mean... People are seeing this, right? I mean, they're seeing it, and, you know, more and more people are feeling it. 
And uh, yes, I, I agree with you about Wall Street wanting to do what it do what it does, and 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 not supporting the president on this tough talking with China. But did you see the other thing? The three models uh, put out by these Democrats, like Steve Ratner, the the auto czar, and uh, Zandi, and and others, all predict, given the economic models, main the the, the, the political models, largely based on the economy, that Trump will win. Did you see that? I did, but that's kind of making my point, isn't it? Yes, it is. In, in a way, in, in a way. So, if if the models are all, if the economy is strong or perceived to be strong, the president wins. And so now they've begun the campaign that the economy is bad. I see, but isn't that kind of pointless? I mean, it's strong. It's obviously strong, isn't it? Strong to people's own eyes. Right. And so that that's the odd part of all this, isn't it? Yeah. That even though people's lives are so much better, they've taken the strategy. It's kind of similar to this impeachment discussion, right? Even if it won't work, they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, they, yeah, they got to do it. They, they feel they right. got to do it. And so they, they've looked at all these models. They've looked at the models. They realize strong economy means re-election. We're going to see if we can't persuade people. We've tried persuading Americans that Donald Trump shouldn't have been elected but for the Russians. That didn't work. So now, even though the economy's strong, we're going to see if we can't persuade them the economy is bad. Because so long as they believe the economy is strong and it is strong, we're sunk. Yeah. We're sunk. Yeah. And so then that means we're living partly in the age of the big lie, aren't we? Yes, several. Yeah. Even though people even though people know things to be true, they're going to say something else and they're going to try to scare people and they're going to try to talk in such a way that they motivate enough of their base, the Democratic base who themselves, their lives are still getting better economically. But they're going to try to persuade that base that things are really bad. And along with that statement of Biden a couple of weeks ago that, uh, you know, China's not a real competitor. Well, that's part, that's part of the whole thing, right? I mean, just keep telling these lies, right? Right, right. Even though the Chinese are, even though we have this trade deficit, and even though the Chinese engage in all this bad behavior, and even though all of them, all these American corporations are saying that China's stealing their intellectual property, the Chinese are building islands in the South China Sea, they're doing all these things around the world, even though we see all that, we're going to say, what? They're, a com- they're not a competitor. Come on. Come on, man. Isn't that what, isn't that what Joe Biden said? Yeah, come on, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Part of the big lie. Yeah. So whatever else, it, whatever the truth is, we don't care. The lie is really much better. I wonder which, what, what he's going to say about, I'm just a uh, parenthesis here, um, it's a rabbit trail we say radio. I wonder what he's going to say about the 1994 crime bill, about which I have some expertise. I'm really curious. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, I just don't see where Biden can distance himself from his past that much. He'll, ha- he'll have to, of course. But I just don't see how it can. Well, he shouldn't. I mean, not on this one, not in the general, because the crime bill was very popular. It was signed by Bill Clinton, you know, not Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump. It was supported by Democrats and Republicans. A lot of people don't know. I remember it was supported by a majority of the Black Caucus in Congress because we had this horrible crime wave going on. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was very funny, kind of an ironic that the president said, oh, man, uh, he's going to have to defend the crime bill. When he does, he's going to lose votes. Well, he, the president may be right about that because people have, you know, political correctness now. But I remember Charlie Rangel. Do you remember Charlie Rangel in the Congress? Oh, of course. 
I mean, you know, he I used to have hearings before him as drugs are. He was tough as nails on this and he was talking to Clinton saying we gotta we gotta sign this. And by the way, it did put more people in prison. And by the way, the communities that were most helped by this very tough crime bill were the inner city communities, because that's where most of the crime is. Well, then you, you, you really do see what has transpired over the past 25 years, where Democrats used to care about people in the inner city. And today, they care much more about political power and political correctness. Yeah. And the radicalization of our politics is come, come to a, a very dangerous place when one of our political parties no longer cares about the people and cares only about political power yeah. and is willing to say or do anything to get that political power. The corruption of our elites in that regard is a, a very sad and dangerous thing. Right, I took the rabbit trail. Let's go back. Uh, I do want to ask you about some an interesting phenomenon in international politics last uh, few weeks. But since you brought up China and since we were talking about China and trade, China and the tariffs, uh, the negotiating place we're at now, tell us what you think. And if you want, give us an update on uh, on your committee, uh, the committee uh, on the present danger of China. Yeah, well, the, the committee was, was really started to illustrate the people, the existential threat posed by the People's Republic of China, and really how the Chinese Communist Party is a very ruthless agent to make China the the supreme power on earth. And we've held a series of meetings in Washington and New York, and we'll be down in uh, Dallas, uh, Texas next week, and in California, probably at the end of June. And I think we've gotten a very warm reception from Americans who themselves see that China's a real problem. Um, on Tuesday, or, uh, excuse me, on Monday, we're going to be back in D.C. talking about uh, the Chinese threat when it comes to human rights. And Tuesday, as you well remember, is the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. And I think a lot of Americans don't know that history very well, and so we're going to remind them of it and simply explain that that um, even though Americans should have been you know, should have wised up to what the Chinese Communist Party was really like. We've gone through 30 years or more of a kind of self-deception when it comes to what the Chinese either are or could be. And they're not liberalizing. They're not becoming respectful of human rights. They're not becoming more economically free. They're becoming an ever more dangerous country, not merely as an economic threat, but as a military and political threat to the country. So yeah. the work of the committee is really to highlight that to as many Americans as possible. Well, I'm glad you're getting that response. If people, commercial here, if people want more information, where do they go, Brian? Uh, presentdangerchina.org 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 Very good. Some good articles and resources there for people. And a very distinguished uh, list of of members. Brian, um, let's talk, stay in international politics. Um, I, I was listening to Steve Bannon the other night and noticing things going on around the world and he talks about a populist revolution around the world including Europe. Who would have thought? He even talked about one in Japan. I don't know if that if that holds up or not. We're going to talk to Gordon Chang about that. But it looks like uh, populism is getting a real foothold here. Um, Brexit. Uh, I was amazed to learn that only six weeks ago, uh, Nigel Farage uh, formed the Brexit party. And last week, it, it won more seats than any other party. It was formed six weeks ago. And, and boy, that's a sign of, 
populism at its best, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, It's both populism and nationalism, too. It it seems to me more than just populism. It seems to me a a realization by a large number of people, both in England and in Europe, that these international institutions or the transnational institutions aren't very good at protecting their interests, whether, whether it's economic interests or their or their national security. And so it's a it's a rebellion from those transnational institutions and a recognition that maybe we ought to be governed by the people near to us, whether they're in Washington or London or Rome or wherever, and not some bureaucrat either at the UN or in Brussels. Yeah, and some member of uh, the EU, I think it was Mr. Juncker, Juncker, talked about some descriptive phrase like the pathetic nationalism of these people. Um, you know, the the, 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 the atavistic uh, notion of, you know, loving one's country rather than some union. Uh, well, people do love their country in the United States, we know that, and they apparently they do in Great Britain and even France, huh? Well, again, I, yeah, yes, is the short answer. They do realize that there's something unique about themselves, whatever country, and that they ought to defend that. And at minimum, they want to be they want to be able to talk to the politicians who ought to be accountable to them. And no one in England or France is voting for Mr. Juncker to run their lives. And yet, we know the Europeans have turned that over to them, and the British decided in a rather common sense way to end all that. Um, We in America had a similar rejection of globalism, let's just call it, with the election of President Trump. And so even though things can can seem rather, uh, you know, bad at times, it comes right down to whether or not human beings want to live free lives and whether or not they want to govern themselves. And we see this. We see this movement, at least in the West, that people do want to govern themselves, and that's that's an encouraging thing. You and I have both just highlighted the British example, but it happened in France as well with uh, Marie Le Pen, correct? Oh yes, no, exactly. And so France, you, know, you see, you see it in a lot of these European countries. This realization that maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. And, and also, not to not to be too too focused on China, but you know, they look at China and all of what China is trying to do in Europe and buy up a lot of these places in Europe, and they don't see that the EU is doing much to stop all that. And yeah. they see a lot of they see a lot of these corrupt EU bureaucrats, and they say, "Well, hmm, I wonder if these people aren't selling off a lot of these European assets to the Chinese." all the while letting into the country a lot of uh, Islamic refugees from North Africa, and they seem to be changing our lives. And so this, this doesn't seem all that, all that good. I saw, I saw an article uh, this morning in the paper with the uh, actor John Cleese. Remember the comedian John Cleese from Monty yes, Python? Yes, sure. He, he, he was criticizing the, the vote on Brexit from London. And just thought London was no longer a, a, I guess, I think you might have said an English city or a British city. Um, just realizing that they don't think of themselves. He wasn't actually talking about, you know, race or anything else. He was simply talking about how the people of London look at themselves. They no longer see themselves as English or British. They see themselves as part of some global community. And Cleese was bemoaning that. He was bemoaning it. Yeah, he, he was bemoaning it. Good, he's on our side. Well, yeah, it seems that way. A little bit. Good. Um, no, I just wanted yeah, to. Point. He, he, he left the country. He, le- he left England. So, I think I think that was he was voting with his feet. I got you. Oh, I, I got you. Well, but but I mean, if he left England, it might have been premature because if they leave Brexit, it might be England again. 
I mean, if no, they like if that. they leave the union, I mean, it might be England again. No, I think that I think it will be. Okay, and that will be that will be good for uh, England and will be good for America. It's always good for America if England understands itself as part of the West. Speaking of quotes, I saw uh, my, our friend John Voigt. Did you see his quote? I did. I thought that was I thought that was very good. Donald Trump, about, greatest about, president about, in America about, since since yeah, since Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, I think um, that's that's that's. That's bold talk, I'd say. That's good. Um, Especially where he lives. Yeah, no. But what a great actor. Yeah, no kidding. I, 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 of course, am here in Southern California where things are completely corrupt. But, you know, we look at these actors and we think they're all crazy. Except for John Voight, who seems pretty sensible. And James Woods. There are a couple more. There are a couple more. Anyway. Right, right. Uh, one last thing on this populism. Did you happen to see that uh, interview or excerpt? of Christiana Manpour interviewing Angela Merkel about all this. You know, I saw pieces of it. It looked kind of pathetic. The, what did you think of it? The part, I, the part I'm referring to is when she said, well, what, what about this populism? And Angela Merkel says, well, it's good, you know, when you hear people's voices and so on. But these people who are, you know, celebrating Germany and German culture and so on need to remember, you know, where we were in, in the 1930s. So... She brands, basically brands a lot of the populism as neo-Nazism. I mean, this is really kind of pathetic. Because she brought about a lot of this situation with this massive welcome uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to the Muslim refugees. Am I right or wrong? Oh, no, I think you're exactly right. And so if you're going to criticize her view of you know, globalism and multiculturalism, any, any, to voice any concern about globalism or multiculturalism in the German context, means you're a Nazi. And well, I think the German people are not going to tolerate that because, look, this whole, this whole thing really is about do you want to live a life of domestic tranquility? And so far, our institutions are not giving us the kind of domestic tranquility we would really want. In this country, it takes the form of illegal immigration and the harmful effects of illegal immigration when it comes to crime and what have you, you know, here in this country for the past two decades. In Europe, it's unchecked Islamic immigration. Have you followed so Sweden people, at all? People are rebelling. Have you followed Sweden at all lately? Um, a little bit. I mean, the, Swe- the Swedish problem is very similar, I think. What do you make of it? I, I, I don't know. Someone told me. I'm, I'm actually advertising my ignorance on air. I don't mind. Someone said, oh, take a look at the Swedish thing. They are really shifting and changing. Again, they were very much welcoming. But now they're, you know, they're wondering what the heck happened to their country. No, right. But they're, they're living out a lot of problems, aren't they? They're, yes. They're, they're, yes. I think they have extremely low birth rate. They, they, they've lost a certain kind of faith in themselves. You know, I think, I think what is it, one in, one in four people now in Sweden is an immigrant. And these are the kind of demographic changes that just don't you know, they're not easy to change back. Yeah, no, that's right. But I, I take uh, some comfort, uh, some heart uh, in this populism. And I saw our, our, our old friend Steve Bannon talking about this. You know, I mean, I, America first, sure. But, you know, Fortress America, that we're the only ones around who believe in country and nation. I prefer company. And I, I'm delighted to see Brexit in in uh, in England and the move in France and the move in Germany and the move elsewhere it's good no it's great because it it just shows you people are being sensible again could anybody in Romania really trust a bureaucrat in Brussels on what's good for him or her no i mean we have this lesson right 
We've seen what international institutions or transnational institutions can do. They can make very bad decisions because it's the conceit of, in a way, higher education, that with enough bureaucrats, we can get this right. Well, they've not gotten it right. They're not going to get it right. And they're leading Europe down a path of ruin. And now the Europeans are trying to correct that. We, we corrected it in this country by electing Donald Trump, or we, we've started down the path of correcting it because tr- President Trump realizes we're here for what's good for America. And now if these other countries can figure out what's good for them, then we can all be friends. That's good. And allies. And, um, you know, like uh, like, our, like our good ally in Japan um, that uh, the president just spent some time with, Mr. Abe. But no, 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 I agree. And I, you know, to, to conclude, uh, and give, I'll give you the last word to conclude where we started. Um, yeah, I think Mueller dropped a dropped a bomb on that stage today, but I don't think it's going to explode in, at the White House. I think it's going to explode on the Democrat Congress. I think they're going to rush to impeachment and rush to their own ruin here in the, in 2020 and give this president four more years in this uh, reconstruction. Yeah, look, everything everything is pointing in the right direction for President Trump. The economy's strong. Uh, his administration is stronger, I think, than it's ever been. I think the addition of Bill Barr, who is a national treasure, is you know was a very important thing. He now, I think, is going to be able to get right some of the things that were left you know, unchecked for the past two two years when it come, came to this investigation. Uh, he'll get that right. And, you know, the combination of all these things, I think that the president's in a very strong position and, and really just getting stronger every day. And if they, if they if people question that, please try impeaching him and see what happens. We'll make that the last word. Thank you, Brian Kennedy. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you today. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. It's time to jump in with Gordon Chang. He's the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Boy, sometimes it seems that's exactly what's going on. Gordon, uh, the president's visit to Japan, I got a lot of smaller questions about it. Um, But uh, the large picture, a good good visit, not a good visit. Uh, What did you think? I thought it was a mixed visit. On the good side of the ledger, the president strengthened the relationship with Japan. And some of the events, I think, played and resonated very well with the Japanese political establishment and, of course, with the Japanese people. And that, um, referring to, for instance, the presentation of the President's Cup at the sumo tournament and, most important, um, the visit with the new emperor. Um, This was the new emperor's first uh, meeting with a foreign leader as emperor. And, and of course, that is going to be symbolic and symbolizes the strengthening of the relationship. On the not-so-good side of the ledger um, were his comments on North Korea, which have gotten a lot of play. Um, but uh, all in all, um, this was a trip that was good for the relationship with Tokyo. Tell us about the relationship with Japan, particularly um, the alliance, a defense alliance, um, the sharing of, uh, of intelligence and defense resources. Why is that important, and why is that particularly important? Important to the Japanese. Who are they worried well, it's about? Important to the Japanese because they are threatened um, on two sides uh, from Russia, um, but also more important uh, from uh, China. It's also important for the United States because for more than a century we have drawn our Western defense perimeter not off the coast of Hawaii or Guam, but off the coast of East Asia. And Japan is, as we say, 
the quote-unquote cornerstone ally. Um, so uh, Japan is essential to the defense of the American homeland. We have American troops there and forces, um, and it is where we base most of our forces in East Asia. So um, it is um, where we uh, meet uh, the adversaries uh, in Asia. Do a little history and geopolitics for me and us. Uh, you said Russia. Uh, China, I understand. I mean, there's a history of Japan. Japan and China, um, an ugly history, a lot of it. I understand that threat, that worry about China, always a worry about China and Japan, I think. But what, what's the Russian threat? Why is that uh, real? Well, um, actually, World War II has not ended. Um, Russia and Japan have not signed a treaty uh, to settle uh, World War II. Really? Really, really. And at the center of this um, is Russia's possession of islands it seized in the latter days of uh, the Second World War. Um, Japan has been insistent that they be returned. Uh, Russia has been insistent on keeping them. They've been the discussion of a number of uh, negotiations. And until recently, uh, Japan saw Russia as its primary threat. It had many of its forces on its northern islands uh, to counter a Russian invasion. And it's only been in the last 10 years or so that the Japanese defense establishment has been refocusing its efforts towards its southwest, in other words, um, with regard to the threat from China. Um, so although these days uh, Japan doesn't uh, consider Russia to be an, a threat, um, nonetheless, it has been for a very long time. And eventually they will end World War II, which would be a good thing. But for the moment, it's still on. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Um, amazing. Did not know that. That's an amazing fact. You mentioned, uh, so you talk about Russia and China. You did not mention North Korea uh, as a threat or as a perceived threat uh, by Japan or to the Japanese. Correct. Yes. Um, you know, with regard to North Korea, um, there are really two issues for the Japanese. Um, one of them is the missile threat, um, and the other, which is actually, I think, um, at the foremost of the Japanese consciousness, are the Japanese abductees. Um, uh, North Korea has admitted to abducting North, uh, Japanese citizens in Europe and, and Japan, um, but uh, the Japanese political establishment does not believe that the North Koreans have given a full accounting. And on this issue, I think the Japanese are right. There's been a lot of dissembling on the part of uh, Pyongyang. Um, and this is a really important issue um, for Shinzo Abe, the Japanese prime minister, because it's a really important issue for the Japanese people. And it should be more of an issue for us, although we have tended to put it at the bottom of our priorities. But because it's important to our cornerstone ally, it should be important to us. What was the mistake, uh, the downside, to be more explicit about what the tweet or the president's comments about North Korea, what explicitly? There are two things. Um, one of them is that uh, President Trump said that uh, North Korea had not recently launched ballistic missiles, and it indeed has. It, it launched them this month, for instance. Um, and then he said that uh, the launch of the whatever um, were not a Security Council, were not in violation of Security Council resolution. Well, as John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, pointed out, they in fact were ballistic missiles, and they were in fact violations of UN rules. And I think the president uh, should have mentioned that. Uh, and backed up his national security advisor on those two points. You know, I can understand Trump saying we're not going to do anything about it. I don't, wouldn't agree with that, but I can understand him saying that. But what he should not have said was, no, no, there were no ballistic missile launches, um, because that's just not the truth. I'm bothered by the embrace of uh, Kim Jong-un. 
you know, the, he's, he's dropped some of the earlier stuff. I love the guy and all that. Um, this is a murderous, horrible dictator. But is there possibly some method in his uh, statements here in order to keep uh, Kim Jong-un close, to let Kim Jong-un know that uh, he's still a friend or potential ally in order to keep negotiations going? Is there some possible good here? Yeah, there's a method in the madness, uh, and and Trump has been very clear about uh, what his method is. Um, At the Ottawa G7, which preceded the historic June 2018 summit between Trump and Kim, at the Ottawa G7, uh, Trump said this was his plan. He said, I'm going to give Kim a quote-unquote one-time shot. And by that, he meant a one-time shot to disarm. Uh, In other words, a period where Kim would feel secure enough to give up his most destructive weapons. Well, Kim has not reciprocated. And so we have seen, for instance, the increase in production of missile material. They're working on ballistic missile facilities. They're improving their nuclear weapons capabilities. And, of course, we've seen the launches of the short-range ballistic missiles. Um, So these are things which... um, undercut President Trump's diplomacy. I tend to think, Bill, and this is just a guess because I don't certainly don't know, but I think that what we're seeing is a replay of President Trump's strategy towards China. In, in 2017, President Trump gave all sorts of free passes to the Chinese. Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, did not reciprocate. And in March and April of last year, Trump brought the hammer down on Beijing. I think we're going to see the same thing with regard to Kim Jong-un, that eventually Trump understands he has been played. This is getting no where it's a political liability, and he brings the hammer down on the Kim regime. So I hope that that's what's going to occur. Is the hammer then, because, I mean, sanctions are working, right? I mean, some of the things we're doing are having an effect. The sanctions um, are being enforced, but they're not being enforced to the full extent. Uh, up and through May, middle of May of last year, President Trump had the most successful American policy with regard to North Korea. He was getting the North Koreans pretty much to do what he wanted, and he was intimidating the Chinese, the Russians, and the South Koreans into supporting the American position. Then Trump went soft. As I mentioned, he was going to give uh, Kim this one-time shot. And so we did not, in the middle of May of last year, um, designate almost three dozen Russian, Chinese, and other front companies that Kim was using to launder money. And because Kim changes his front companies all the time, essentially, we were allowing the North Koreans to hollow out sanctions. And since that time, we've allowed Russia, China, and South Korea to openly violate sanctions, and we haven't done very much about it. So Kim, I believe, is not taking advantage of the goodwill period. He's, uh, you know, using his um, means to import a lot of money uh, in violation of U.S. and U.N. rules. And this is on us. Uh, We can stop this tomorrow if President Trump goes after Chinese banks and others who have been violating the sanctions. Right. And that's what you mean by the hammer, which is uh, go after the Chinese banks, enforce the whole, all the sanctions all the way through. Yes. All right. You don't mean a hot war, right? No, no. And and, uh, and this, I would differ from the comments of uh, John Bolton before he was national security advisor, who was advocating uh, um, a very forceful militant policy. I think that we have so many tools, short of the use of force, to get the North Koreans to do what we want. And I think that through the sanctions and through other means, we are would able to put Kim in a position where he has never been before and, and neither has his father, we'd be able to put him in a position where it says either you um, take survival or you keep your weapons, but you ain't getting both. Okay. Let's uh, let's shift to China for a couple of minutes. Where, where do you think things stand now in the, in the trade talks? 
Things are deteriorating very quickly. Um, China is just a few hours ago renewed another threat to um, conduct war against the U.S. Um, about a week ago, they had this uh, comment, um, which was carried by People's Daily and Xinhua News Agency, which are both official, uh, about a people's war against the United States. So clearly, uh, they're ramping up the rhetorical um, campaign against us. And also, we've heard in the last few hours another threat to cut off the export of rare earth minerals to the United States, which would be a violation of China's World Trade Org- Organization obligations. Um but, you know, this is going downhill fast. I think that this is actually a good thing in the sense that I think we need to separate our two economies, and this is going to facilitate that. But we need to make sure we don't blink, because the Chinese are really good at intimidating uh, others. And I just hope that, um, you know, the American public and American business stands firm with President Trump on this. And I hope that President Trump stands firm. You've long argued, uh, we've been listening to you for years on this, that we have a lot more leverage with China than a lot of people realize. Well, you know, last year, just to take one statistic, last year, China's merchandise trade surplus with the U.S. accounted for 129.6% of its overall merchandise surplus. 129.6%, Bill. I mean, we can we can force China to do things it doesn't want to do, but we've got to exercise political will. And of all presidents, Trump has had the most political will, but we need even more of it because China is, uh, for various reasons, at a point where it is not willing to deal in good faith with the United States or with the international community. It doesn't believe in the theory of comparative advantage, which underpins international commerce. Its trade behavior has markedly gotten worse under Xi Jinping. And so they're not leaving us with any choice. And by the way, the most important thing, they're stealing U.S. intellectual property and their theft appears to be increasing. And we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars a year in the loss to the U.S. in U.S. IP. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I would add from my own perspective, from my own history, the uh, importation of uh, fentanyl coming in by uh, huge amounts. And you don't need huge amounts to poison an entire country. Right. I mean, China runs now a police state. It's all, it's all it's semi-totalitarian. They know about these large, well-organized gangs that manufacture and sell fentanyl. This is going on with Beijing's knowledge, um, and it is at least a perpetrator. It is at least complicit if, if it's not a perpetrator. So you know we're having basically what twenty nine, thirty thousand Americans die each year from fentanyl. Seventy, well, seventy from all opioids. Most of it now fentanyl and heroin. We're talking at least. 30,000 American deaths a year, um, and China's causing them, and we ought to hold them responsible. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Explain something to me. We can keep you a couple more minutes. I was listening to, I don't know why, but I was listening to an interview uh, somewhere with a minister, a major minister, not the prime minister or president, but a major minister from Singapore. And he was asked the question about Chinese Chinese growth and expansion. And he said, oh, this is good. This is very good. This is very good for all of us. Is it? Well, yeah, you were listening to the comments of the foreign minister. Uh, and, and basically, okay. Singapore's period uh, comment was, the United States should allow China to develop, which sounds nice in theory, but um, allowing China to develop is essentially allowing them to steal U.S. and other um, intellectual property, allow them to commit trade violations, allow them to grab and dismember countries on their borders, including Japan, the Philippines, India. So, yeah, those comments sounded good, but um, when you look at what China is actually doing, um, their conduct is unacceptable and very destructive of international order. 
why would the, why is it in Singapore's interest? Just explain simply why why is Chinese expansion and growth good for Singapore? Um, actually, they're not not. I mean, in in terms of growth, um, yeah, if they grow, it means they're buying stuff from their neighbors, um, basically raw materials, um, selling manufactured goods, and so in a sense, you could say that that's good. Um, but clearly, China um, dismembering the neighborhood is not a good thing for Singapore, uh, especially for a trading nation. I mean, if the South China Sea is closed off by China, that directly affects Singapore, which is that commerce hub um, at the tip of the Malaysian Peninsula. So, um, you know, Singapore, like other nations, are just trying to hedge and balance. And this happens in Asia when people think the United States is weak. Um, so. Trump needs, yeah, Trump needs to just show everyone that we're going to win this and so that we get much better comments from the Singaporean foreign minister and from other foreign ministers in the region. I see. So in case China wins in the end, Singapore's hedging its bets. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but one of the one, uh, political aspects, I want to actually say, ask, ask you something about Europe because you're a great observer of the entire international scene. But I saw somewhere someone called uh, Mr. Abe in Japan, the Donald Trump of Japan. Populism in Japan. Is populism sweeping Japan? Trumpian type populism? I wouldn't put it in those terms. Um, Abe is. Trump would put it in those terms, I think. Trump will put, yeah, that in, and I can understand <laughs> that. But um, Abe is, is, you know, he heads the Liberal Democratic Party. And if there is any party in the world that is not populist, I think you probably would say that it, the LDP is close to the top. Not the top, but close to the top. So he's not a populist, but he is a conservative. He's very pro-American. Uh, he wants Japan to do the right things. And so Japan is a really important ally right now and is very much supporting U.S. interests. Matter of fact, on issues like North Korea, uh, Japan has consistently had more resolute positions than Washington. So we have a lot to learn from the Japanese. Good, good, good. And let's talk for a minute about populism. Populism in general or populism in Europe, because in fairness to the president, it does look like there's some uh, Trump like uh, politics uh, and activity going on in Europe. The, the Brexit party in England, uh, uh, Le Pen in France um, and, uh, and in Germany elsewhere. Uh, is is there a new populism in Europe? There clearly is a new populism in Europe, as evidenced by the most recent uh, European Parliament elections. Um, there's no question that this is occurring. Um, and matter of fact, uh, the polls that are being done in Britain show that if there were a second Brexit referendum, Brexit would win. So, um, And that probably wasn't the case, let's say, six months or so ago. Um, so what you're seeing right now is there's the resurgence of populism. Um, and it's understandable, given um, the politics of the European Union, which are really unappetizing. I mean, it's really important, of course, to maintain European unity. Um, we don't want a replay of the situations that we saw, for instance, in the first decade of the last century. We don't want to see the 1930s again, but we don't want to see what we've uh, witnessed recently with regards to the EU in a way which is, um, may many ways, undemocratic, Bill, um, certainly um, stagnating the European economy. So there needs to be a fresh wind. And for the moment, uh, European populations have said they're populist. Two things uh, caught my eye. One, uh, Brexit, uh, the Brexit Party, which, I, if I'm correct, uh, was formed six weeks ago uh, and uh, got the most votes of anybody uh, in, in Britain. Uh, Nigel Farage. I mean, that's kind of amazing, right? 
It is amazing. Um, you know, especially when you consider, you know, you go back not too long ago, there were real second thoughts about Brexit because people were focusing in on all sorts of um, negative economic implications of Brexit, which Europe, which England will feel, Britain will feel. But what's happened, though, uh, and this is absolutely fascinating, um, you have uh, overreaching by Brussels in their negotiations with Britain. And that's just, uh, if I can use the term, you just pissed off the British population. And so you see that surge of popularity for a newfound party. Um, and this is a real warning to the EU that if it's going to force no-deal Brexit, it's probably going to pay um, not only in its relations with London, but also in relations with other members of the EU that are thinking of ditching the union. Yeah. Uh, the other comment that caught my uh, ear, um, Gordon, was... Uh, an interview with uh, Angela Merkel in which she said, well, it was interesting and encouraging in some ways, but I hope people remember uh, these uh, populous uh, Germany in the 1930s. That's kind of an unfair shot, isn't it? Every time there's a, a challenge to the establishment in Germany, it uh, must be the National Socialists on the march yeah, again. I, I think you're referring to the Christian Amanpour interview. Um, Boy, you've seen everything. I can't remember where I saw what and who said it. <laughs> you got it nailed down. I only saw a bit of it. Um, yeah, no, this is this is really unfair. Uh, and she made a number of other comments, which I can't quite put my finger on, which were also unfair. Um, you know, this is scaremongering. Now, I, I understand the impulse that um, European leaders want to preserve the European project. And there's a lot of good things that a European project can accomplish. It's just that the EU, as it's presently configured, has... Um, produce some pretty undesirable results for the comp. And they're going to have to loosen the bonds. They're going to have to make do some things which make more commercial sense than they have. And they probably are going to have to rethink the euro. Um, so there's all sorts of things there that, um, you know, I, I think people like Merkel and others are just in denial. I, I, I do too. I do too. We'll leave it there. Listen, this was great. Uh, thank you as always, Gordon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Claude, just a reflection on our two conversations here with uh, Brian and Gordon um, on this populism thing. I mentioned Sweden and that, you know, I should do my homework first before bringing it up, but I expressed my ignorance uh, or my, at least a gap in my knowledge on, on the air. But if people know, and I know some of our audience has great familiarity with Sweden, travel there, do business there. What is going on in Sweden? Is there, is there, is there a populist revolt? Are they... Uh, reacting against uh, this flood and tide of immigrants. Um, understand there's a lot of problems there. What is the situation in the Swedish uh, in, in Sweden right now? We'd love to know. If you have thoughts, please email us at... Oh, yeah, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. That's it. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. 